Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks so much for gathering here this morning, and thank you for bringing the, the church into this sanctuary. So good to be able to gather with you. If you're gathered for a crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into uh, your living room, dining room, wherever you happen uh, to be. If we've never met before, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Um, and if you are an elementary kid here, will you raise your hand a second? You're maybe normally not in here. All right, let's welcome these folks to the service. It's great to have you guys here. I heard a rumor there's like bounce houses after the service. Um, just know I'm going to be right out there with you. So uh, just letting you know, fair warning. So uh, I'm really excited this morning, not only just to open up God's word as normal, but also to begin a brand new sermon series that will take us all the way up to Holy Week, to Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and then Easter. And it's a series through the parables of Jesus, looking at Jesus as this great storyteller. And so what we're going to do this morning is start in what is regarded as kind of this turning point in particular um, of Jesus's ministry and why he tells this particular parable we'll look at in Matthew. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But for us in this series, we're going to be journeying through uh, the parables of Jesus, eight of them that we see in the gospel of Luke. There's some 30 plus recorded uh, parables of Jesus throughout the gospels, more depending on how you categorize certain things. So we're not going through all of them, but we're going to be looking at these parables of the kingdom. And in particular, this morning, we're going to be paying attention to this invitation to hear from God. You don't need to hear my thoughts, my opinions, right? We need to hear from God in his word. And what does it look like to have our minds and our hearts illuminated? And so I want to invite you to pray this prayer uh, that I'll put up on the screen. So read this aloud with me, this prayer for illumination as we begin this series together. Please join me now. Holy God, word made flesh, let us come to this word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears, penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait with great anticipation. Amen. So this morning, as we get into this series, we're going to be looking at what has traditionally been referred to as the parable of the sower out of Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. So if you got a Bible, please turn there. All right, there are Bibles in the pews. You can also scan the QR code that's in your pew on your phone to bring up uh, our sermon notes, which is at thisiscp.church, and click uh, sermon notes there. Uh, as you're getting there, it should be noted, as we'll see as we get further into this, it's really a misnamed parable, um, though it certainly is about the sower, and the sower makes an appearance. There's really a focus primarily on the soils that we're going to read about, which represent your heart and my heart, and how do we respond to this seed, this word of God. So I want to go ahead and read this, the parable of the sower, keeping in mind that this is God's very word to us this morning, and then we'll, we'll dive into this great text together. And so Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, and when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, 
and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse nine. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, in hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, and the ones along the path are those who have heard, and when then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the one on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root, and they believe for a while, and in time of testing fall away. Verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So as we look at this text this morning, here's how it begins. And this is why it's referred to by many scholars as this sort of turning point, because it tells us when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, then he gives this particular parable. This particular parable shows up in a way because Jesus is seeing, I mean, he is trending, folks. I mean, he is the one that everybody is talking about. There is this Galilean peasant from kind of this hick town called Nazareth that apparently nothing good comes out of Nazareth, except there's this guy who's come on the scene and he's doing miracles. He's healing people. He's providing for people and people can't get enough. And so the crowds begin to show up. All right. And he is just moving about. And think about this. Like we can kind of pinpoint, like if something's happening, maybe we literally will follow social media or there's going to be like this little pop-up event or something like that. I mean, Jesus, it just would have been word of mouth. People would have been like, oh, maybe he's going to this town or this town. And they're just leaving everything and they're all in because they want to see him. And yet he tells this particular parable, not only here in Luke, but as I said, it's recorded in Matthew and in Mark. And you get different details. I'd encourage you to go read those accounts, Matthew 13 and Mark 4. But what we're seeing is Jesus is trying to say to the crowds, listen, he's not anti-large crowds. He wants to see more people join the kingdom, but he has concerns. And his concern is this, perhaps people have come for the show. Not that he is promoting himself in that way or even promoting himself, but they view it. There's like this hype. There's this movement. It's like, ooh, there's this thing that's happening. And so Jesus begins to tell these parables, and it's this turning point and what Jesus does with parables is he begins to disrupt. He takes the familiar things of the world, of the culture, and he says, okay, consider this. And as you're considering that, he's doing this work. Like there's this whole other thing that's happening. And we'll get into that more in just a moment. But as we look back at just this parable that's recorded in verses 4 to 10, I want to put before you that really what Jesus is doing, not only in this parable, but really in all his parables, as he teaches us about the kingdom, these are subversive stories. Now, we love stories, right? I mean, stories are the things that we tend to remember, all right? Now, maybe some of you have the gift to be able to remember just tons of, like, really, like, just details, right? Like, I remember this on this page and this and what all that stuff. But most of us, it's like, oh, we tend to just remember the things that move us, the stories that captivate our hearts. Stories have a way of captivating our imagination, 
And Jesus is a masterful storyteller. But he's not telling stories to entertain. He's not telling stories to draw a crowd. He's not trying to do those things. But he's telling these stories in a way because they are subversive stories. They are stories that are meant to upend what is going on. And then he says this sort of cryptic phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so there's an invitation really for all of us. Like, will we actually hear? My prayer is that through this series, we would hear more clearly from Jesus. Regardless of if you're new to Christianity, you're just exploring, you're somebody that's been a Christian for as long as you can remember, all right? Would we hear afresh? Do you have ears to hear? Or as in that prayer we prayed a few moments ago, man, maybe there's just some cobwebs that have sort of built up. May we hear afresh. Now, we, I think it would be helpful as we talk about stories here for a moment. Um, let's define what I mean by subversive and not what I mean by it, but let's go to the actual dictionary. All right. And so here was uh, the definition All right, that I came across this week about subversive. All right. And so you see it there. Tending or intending to subvert, to overthrow, destroy, or undermine an established or existing system, especially a legally constituted government or a set of beliefs. I believe this applies 100% to what Jesus is doing with these stories. That it's this way of him saying, okay, there's these established norms, all right? There's a particular ruler in the area that's known as the Caesar, right? And he's come to upend that, but not in the way that people expect or even hope. And there's religious establishment that has a certain way of life that they are guarding, all right? Those that are in power there want to promote a system that would say it's up to you to earn, to do the right things. And Jesus wants to upend that, to disrupt that, to subvert that, to see all of that overthrown in this beautifully redemptive way. These are the goals of Jesus. And this is why he tells these sort of stories. And so as we get into this one of the parable of the sower, This sets the stage for all the other parables that we'll look at. Like, this is the introduction to all of them. It's even in this one, because Jesus does something that he doesn't do in all the parables. He actually interprets it for us, right? We'll get to that in a moment. And I find encouragement in that, because he tells this story, and the disciples kind of roll up, and they're like, uh, say what? Like, what? What's going on? Can you explain that? And I think we'll feel that a bit as we go through parables, particularly when they don't Jesus doesn't circle back and say, here, let me, let me explain it to you. But in this one, he does. Because it's so key to understanding all of the other ones. And so as we look at this, as he's telling these subversive stories, in verse 10, he says this, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And again, this language can be a little bit confusing because we say secret, we tend to be like, you know, like we're whispering, right? And like, we don't want other people to hear. So is Jesus not wanting other people to know about the kingdom? Is he just attempting to keep it to himself? That's not the exact language being used here. It really is. There's the mystery of the kingdom. There's this revealing of the kingdom. And he's saying, you disciples, like it has been granted to you. It has been given to you. Not because you earned it, not because you're amazing or anything special, but it is by Grace alone, you have been brought in. And he tells the story, he's telling these stories about what it looks like when the kingdom of God advances. In this last month in January, we looked at the Lord's Prayer in our On Earth As It Is in Heaven series. And what do we pray? 
Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is teaching us here through these parables what it looks like for his kingdom to advance and not our own. And friends, the kingdom of God, let me read to you this quote. We don't tend to think in that sort of language, right? I mean, we don't tend to talk a lot about kingdoms. Maybe we watch some of what, you know, goes on like the British monarchy and all that, that sort of stuff. But generally speaking, it's not the world that we inhabit. And so how are we to think about these things? Well, the kingdom, it includes the forgiveness of sins. It includes you being in right relationship with God. And it also includes so much more than that. Commenting on this, Tim Keller once said this, forgiveness of sins is just the beginning. It's just the foundation. It's just the start. The kingdom of God is nothing less than the power of God in heaven entering the world to heal every alienation and every brokenness in every dimension of human life, whether it's social or economical or racial or emotional or physical or psychological or spiritual. Like that covers a lot, right? That's what we long for. Would you heal? Would you bring this healing? And Jesus is saying, friends, the secrets of the kingdom, I'm helping to explain it to you in these parables because it's not just someday off in the future, though it's fulfillment, comes in the future, it starts now. Jesus didn't show up and say, hey, I'm just letting you know in a few thousand years, like the kingdom's going to come. And so just look forward to that day. You know, He says, no, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is breaking in right in the midst of this world. And so he tells these parables. And then it says this. And again, let's admit this is a bit of a confusing line, right? So he says, you've been given you know, to know the secrets but the others, for others, they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And again, it's like, wait, what? Like, you don't want people to understand? You're just trying to speak in riddles? Are you trying to confuse everybody? Are you the worst teacher ever? Like, what's going on here? We don't have time to unpack all of this, but just know what is being spoken of here is really a warning to say the human heart Oftentimes, like our propensity is we can hear and not really hear. Some of you who are parents in the room, I'm imagining maybe at some point, like a child said to you, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Or yeah, yeah, I got that. And they gave lip service to what you would ask them to do. And then they didn't follow through. And lest it be the kids, the only ones indicted here, kids, have your parents ever said, yes, I'm going to do this. We'll take care of this. And they didn't. All right. Like we all do this. All right. You have People you work with, coworkers that say they're going to do something. They heard you. They read the email, right? They got the text message, and yet they didn't follow through. And you have done the same thing. So it's possible to hear and not really hear. Like, it's possible, and it happens more than I'd like to admit, for my wife to ask me something. I'm like, yeah, 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 I, I got that. While I'm like, you know, uh, on my phone with the computer, with uh, music going, like, I can multitask. That's a hoax. No, you can't, right? Um, so to hear the words but not really hear. And so what it's getting at is like it's possible, Jesus is saying, to really see but not see, to hear but not really hear. In fact, these words that he speaks, if you were to go read Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, he gets this vision. He gets this vision of, of the Lord and all his holiness and grandeur. 
He's like, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And God cleanses him. And then God says, like, who will go to the nations? Who will communicate the word of God? And Isaiah, like that overzealous kid in class, like, ooh, me, 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 right? And he's just like going crazy. And the Lord says, okay. Because Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And it's just very like, feels like this very heroic moment. And then God's like, okay, I'm gonna send you out and you're gonna go tell the people and they're not gonna listen. And you're gonna put things before them that they'll see, but they won't really see. And they will have these obstinate and hard hearts. There you go, Isaiah, have fun, right? Like that's how it ends, it seems. And yet there's this little line in the end in, in verse 13 where it says, in the midst of this hardship, of Isaiah just pouring his heart out, communicating God's word, and people seemingly just having cobwebs in their ears. God speaks of his people as a massive tree that has been cut down, and there's just a stump that remains, and even within that stump, there's a seed. But that seed, friends, will one day burst forth, and there'll be new life, and God will continue to be on the move, and his kingdom will expand, and his people will be built, and a church will be formed, and that has been playing out all the way to here in this moment. And so Jesus comes on the scene, says these words out of Isaiah chapter 6, right, where there's this little obscure reference to a seed, and then he tells a story about a sower going out scattering seed, this very common image that people would have seen, they would have participated in, they would have known. Oh, yeah, of course, the sower goes out and he sows seed into the soil. And so as we get into the interpretation now of this parable, just let me ask you, do you have eyes or ears to hear and eyes to see. Do you and I, do you have that, all right? And so as we get going, one of the things that we just need to keep in mind is that question is not meant to be passed over. That question is something that we should be asking of ourselves as we go through this series, as we journey through every parable. Do you have ears to hear? Do you actually have eyes to see? Sometime, I think it was like early to mid-December of last year, uh, there's an article that popped up on my news feed that looked rather interesting, um, and it was a story about uh, this woman, her name's Serena, um, and she was kind of the, the lead person in charge, the curator um, at the Museum of Art in Cincinnati. And there in this particular museum, this one who would be responsible, all right, for all these beautiful, amazing works of art, uh, works of art that she has seen hundreds, if not thousands of times, right? Like literally would walk past these things every day, would see people coming in to look at, at these particular paintings and all the things that are there on exhibit. And one day she's passing a particular work of art, again, that she's probably seen just hundreds of times by this, uh, what I believe is a French painter, Paul, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Cezanne, right? Cezanne, something like that, all right? Um, Susan? No, probably not that. But anyway, Cezanne. And it's this beautiful work of art that's entitled Still Life with Bread and Eggs. And he painted this uh, in 1865, they believe, all right? And so there's this work of art, and it hangs there at this museum in Cincinnati. Like, you can go and see that uh, today, all right? And so that particular thing, which for one, just exhibits everyday, ordinary sort of things, right? I mean, it's just still life with 
bread. You've got these like baguettes right there, and you've got these loaves of bread, and you've got a cup there, and a little bit of a you know, dining setup, and you've, uh, you've got some eggs that, that are on the table, but seemingly like nothing crazy out of the ordinary. doesn't look like the best you know, dishware has been brought out. It's just kind of an average, ordinary scene. And so this curator, this woman, Serena, as she passes it, though, she notices one day that there's a couple cracks, which is not uncommon in these old works of art, as best as they've been tried to be preserved. Like, there are a couple cracks in the canvas, but she noticed they weren't really in any other place except these two. And they were literally sort of, to put this back up, right to the right of the cup there, just kind of in that area. And it's harder to see on on the screen, but she also noticed as well that there were almost like a couple dots of like white, almost like bright light, she thought, like that appeared. And she's like, so much of that painting is, is dark in the background. There's a particularly dark period in the, the, the artist's life. And she's like, that seems very uncommon that there'd be a little bit of this almost bright white coming through. And so she just had this hunch. And so she did, which I didn't know that really could be done. She called this company and they brought in this portable x-ray machine. And she's like, I want to see like What's there? There's this everyday scene in this beautiful painting, but is there something going on more? Is there perhaps something that has been missed by people? And as they put this painting through the x-ray machine, she began to notice something emerge just to the upper right of that particular cup. And then as she's looking and she's trying to get, you know, kind of get her bearings, she flips it up vertically, and here is the image that it reveals. So if you can kind of turn your head this way, you can see the cup, but do you notice now what is in the upper left sort of quadrant? It's a portrait. And it's believed to be a self-portrait painted by Paul Cezanne. Whether he simply ran out of canvas and was like, I don't want to run to the store, or I don't have enough money to afford one, and then just painted over this, or perhaps it was something that he intentionally meant to do, What she noticed was like, oh, there's the painting, and then there's this other layer. Like, there's something else that's going on. Friends, this is how we have to think about these parables, that Jesus is telling us something and saying, yeah, you see the average, everyday, ordinary stuff. You see the sower, and you see the seed, and the soils. But are you really seeing in his just exhaustive commentary. Uh, this guy, Klein Snodgrass, which amazing last name, by the way. All right. Um, he wrote, uh, commenting on this and on parables, uh, his, much of his life work dedicated to the study of parables said this, parables function as a lens that allows us to see the truth and to correct distorted vision. They allow us to see what we would not otherwise see. And they presume we should look at and see a specific reality. They are stories with an intent. Analogies through which one is enabled to see truth. They are stories with two levels of meaning. The story level through which one sees and the truth level, the reality being portrayed. So as we move into the interpretation now of this, beginning in verse 11, what is the reality being portrayed? What is it that Jesus wants not only the people a couple thousand years ago to consider and to contemplate and to mull over, What does he have for you and me here this morning? And so the very first thing that we see is the disciples are like, hey, what's going on here? And he says, let me explain it to you. He starts by saying in in verse 11, if you look back at that, Jesus makes it very clear, all right? He just says, all right, let me tell you this. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Not overly complicated, 
Very straight and to the point, all right? Jesus is saying the seed that has been scattered is the word of God. But do not, here's the, the tendency, I think. I think we can view that as just such average, ordinary, like we all probably have more Bibles than we know what to do with. We can access anything on our phone at any time. We can Google answers to Bible and theology questions, right? Those are all wonderful gifts, but it's possible they become just sort of part of this still life and there's this whole other layer, this whole other thing that's going on. And so when he says this, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Do not lose sight of the fact that the word is what creates, that God spoke a word into the chaos, into the void of this world in Genesis 1, and new creation, this creation bursts forth, that Jesus himself, the God-man, shows up as the word made flesh, that the word has power. It's the word. It's Listen, the pressure's off. It's not you and me going out trying to convince people again, right? The power is in the word. This is why Paul would write this in Colossians chapter one. He writes to a church in Colossae and he says, listen, praise God. I'm, I'm just thanking God for the work in your life. And look what he attributes it to. He says this, beginning verse three, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Friends, that's where the power is. The seed is the word. And then Paul continues which has come to you. And then look at this. Look at this language of sort of like sprouting and growth and fruitfulness, which has indeed come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and it's increasing as it does among you since the day. Now here it goes again. You heard it because apparently according to Jesus, the kingdom comes when we hear and we understand, meaning we understand it and we follow him. We understand who Jesus is. Our hearts are awakened and enlivened and illuminated. Our eyes are actually able to see. Our ears can hear. You heard it and understood, and you didn't hear about good advice or steps to follow. You heard about the grace of God in truth. This is the word. This is the power that's at work among us. And that line there bearing fruit and increasing, right? Again, be reminded, that has been playing out, this new life bursting forth, coming out of the ground like a seed that's sprouting, all right, and bursting forth with all this new life. That's been playing out for generation after generation after generation. Because you're here this morning. What started as a group of people, this little misfit ragtag group of people, all right, outside of Jerusalem, who were like on the complete underside of power, had no name, no fame, no followers. They were not the influencers of culture. Nobody cared about them. Somehow, it subverted the entire Roman world and empire. And it's led to a day where you and I are here still talking about this Jesus, still worshiping this Jesus. This is the power of the word, all right? And so it goes from the seed, and then what we begin to move into in a moment, we'll see this explanation of the soils. But perhaps you might be encouraged in these words written by Brian Chapel, used to be the president of Covenant Seminary. We think that life would be so much easier if God would just miraculously write his will in the clouds or speak in the thunder. But if he wrote in the clouds, then the words would all blow away. And if he spoke in the thunder, then his voice would fade away. So instead, God says, in essence, hey, 
Would you mind if I just wrote my words down for you so you could have them wherever you go and whenever they are needed? Inspired scripture, friends, is the greater miracle. That we get to open up God's word. We get to hear about the grace of God, this word of truth. But it's possible to hear and not really hear. And so in these closing verses, as Jesus unpacks more of this parable, what he's putting before us as we talk about the soils in verses 12 to 15 is this. There is a bit really of a soil test. And Jesus will refer in these verses that we read a few moments ago, he likens the soil to the condition of our hearts. So I want to look at these four soils that he talks about. He's introduced this theme of why parables. He's introduced this this question for us to consider, like, do you have ears to actually hear? And so not only for this parable, but also through this whole series, and anytime we interact with the word of God, we have to ask, like, what is the condition of our heart? Where do we fall? So as we look for a moment at these soils, use it as a bit of a diagnostic a bit of a test to look, not to heap shame or guilt, but so that you might rightly know, like, oh, where am I in this? And ask the Lord to move. So the first thing that we see, if we look at verse 12, is really what's spoken of is a very hard heart. Verse 12, Jesus describes it this way. He says, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, the language that's going on here, all right, was back up in verse 5 as part of the parable. The sower goes out, some fell along the path. It was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. I don't know if he's attributing birds and Satan. Maybe they're the same. I don't think that's the correlation. But anyway, um, this the seed goes out. Just think about this image. It is totally disregarded. It is trampled underfoot. The word goes out, this beautiful word of God, and yet there's a hardness in the human heart that just tramples it. And not only that, it's not only the hardness of our heart, but there is somebody, an entity that is actively working against the word taking root. He says, the devil comes and snatches that away. Now, listen, I don't know what kind of tradition you grew up in in the church. Maybe you grew up in a tradition where it's like the devil, Satan was talking about all the time. Like he's literally hiding under every rock and bush. He's ready to jump out at any moment and like maybe just breathe a little and calm down, right? Don't, let's not give the devil more power than he actually has. But you also might've grown up, and I think this is more me, in a tradition, a church tradition that can almost forget that that's a reality, to forget that there are principalities and powers at work, that there's an active agent trying to work against the word of God. The devil comes and snatches it away. Do you believe that? Now, this past, I think it was like Wednesday, I was was getting ready to drive uh, home, leaving here from the office. I'm heading home. My wife uh, calls or texts and says, hey, can you pick up a couple things at Publix? Um, And I said, sure. And then I got to Publix and I literally don't know how to do anything out in the world. Um, And so I like called her like six or seven times, right? Like, where do I get this? Where do I find this? And I'm slowly making my way through Publix, getting the things that we need. That's actually a true story. Um, And uh, there's no preacher hyperbole in that, unfortunately. Um, But, um, and so I have my phone out and I just gotten a message from her. And then I look up, all right? Um, and I'm walking down this aisle, which you'll also see is like the Coke and candy aisle, right? Um, which is fun. Uh, um, this dude is in front of me um, wearing that shirt. Satan is real. Which as an aside, 
you just got to be on the lookout for pastors needing illustration material, right? Like we are always on the hunt for it. So this unsuspecting guy, all right, is now part of our service here this morning, right? Now I have no idea if that shirt is like, I don't know what was on the other side. I don't know if this is some weird band I've never heard of. I don't know if this means like, he's like, yes, Satan is real and I love him. I, I don't actually know, right? Or if he's just making this, but here's, here's the truth of the matter. Part of it was jarring to me because he's like, oh, yeah, he's not wrong. That actually is true. Now, I don't know what he's doing with that information, but what Jesus is doing with the information is saying, there's a hardness of the human heart that needs to be recognized. And you also need to realize there's a battle. There's somebody actively working against the word of God going forward. Now, in the end, Jesus says, listen, gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So don't fear, but also let's recognize what's going on. From there, Jesus continues, it's not only hard hearts, but they're shallow hearts. Look how this is described in verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. And they believe for a while in a time of testing, they end up falling away. So he speaks of these shallow hearts. Friends, this is... Part of what I think we see when the crowds begin to gather. It's people so dialed in like, ooh, this looks interesting. Ooh, this is fascinating. Is this the latest thing? Is this the trending thing? Is this the thing to join up in? Not realizing that Jesus says, you need to take up your cross and to follow after me. What he's saying is there's this new life that sort of appears, it seems to burst forth, right? And people in that context would have known, yeah, there's this little bit of soil and something could spring forth. You get just the right amount of rain that would happen, all right, the right amount of watering. But because it's rock underneath, when the moment that like sun comes out, it just withers away and it dies. Now, that's not how the word of God is, but it's saying how it, what's happening in this person's life is that they've got a shallow heart. And the way that this gets revealed is it says there's no rootedness. This is people who have operated with a mindset functionally that says this, huh, I've got my goals, my agenda, I've got my kingdom, and maybe Jesus, maybe I can get a little of that Jesus blessing on my life. Maybe the missing thing in my life is I just don't have Jesus. So let me add Jesus as just one component of the rest of my life. And Jesus will have none of that. Jesus says, no, you surrender your life to me. You die to your kingdom and you come into my kingdom. And that's where you actually find life. And the gospel begins to take root. But it says there was a little bit of trial. There's a little bit of testing. It's not to minimize that. What it did is it revealed, oh, in that moment, maybe you've experienced this in your life or people you care deeply about. This has been their story. You're like, oh my gosh, They love Jesus. They're coming to Bible study. They're signing up for everything. They're in like 18 small groups right now. They're serving on every team, even when they can't be in two places at once. Like they're just all in. And then a trial happens. A temptation happens, some testing. It's like, ah, hmm, Jesus isn't really coming through for me like I thought he would. And they're on to the next thing. There's no rootedness. He says it just withers up. Is that your heart? Took a couple of photos. This is, I don't know, this is probably over a decade ago. Uh, I'll put it up here in a moment. The one on the left is a Christmas tree in our home, freshly decorated, right? So kids, they just put all the ornaments on. It's, it's fun. It's like, yeah, this is amazing, right? And it looks, although we can also admit once a year it's strange, we drag a gigantic 
tree plant into our living room. But anyway, all right, so this thing comes in, and it's real because we're real Christians, all right? And so I'm just kidding, all right? So, um, but this real tree get, gets brought in, all right? And so there, there it is, decorated, it's fun. Now, unfortunately, whenever we took the tree down, I put it out in the backyard, and I leaned it up against the house, and then weeks went by, and my wife was like, hey, you going to take that to the road? I'm like... Oh, maybe. And then I, like, I went out there, and I had just forgotten about it. And you see, that's literally the same tree, right? So the one on the left, that's kind of like, ooh, that's the hype, and it's exciting, and it's all this. But let's admit, even if you give it water and you put that little stuff that you're supposed to sprinkle in, right, like it cannot live. It's been cut off from the root source, right? It's been cut off from life. And friends, this is what it's saying. This is where we end up when we have shallow hearts, And so Jesus then, as he continues in love saying these things and interpreting this, he's really laid out, the first two clearly are not followers of Jesus. The hard hearts, they would never admit that. Even the shallow hearts maybe seem like they were for a time, but it quickly just, things go away. This next one, though, I think is a bit confounding. Because it is the space, I don't want to presume upon you, this is where my heart is oftentimes. And Jesus has some really, I think, powerful, just like gripping imagery that he communicates because he talks about divided hearts in verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature Mark 4 would say, by the cares and the deceitfulness of riches. It is not that the Bible is anti-money. It's not that the Bible is anti-pleasures. No. What Jesus is saying is it's so possible, though, to get caught up in a pursuit of the good gifts that the Lord has given to us. Relationships, a career, saving money, spending money, enjoying things, travel, retirement, like all that. They can be really good, amazing things. But if any of those things gets elevated, we end up worshiping that and we have a divided heart. And it says there's this fruit, but it does not grow to maturity. So what Jesus is saying is like, do you have a divided heart? And then he actually says what's happening. This is, we need to pay attention to this. Don't skim over this. He says, what begins to grow up is, yes, there's this fruit that begins to happen in your life and in my life. But if we've got a divided heart, thorns come up. And it's like a vine that has thorns, and it begins to wrap around. Jesus literally is asking us to consider, are you choking? They begin to choke out the word. Now, I know this is a violent thing to consider, but I think it's helpful for a moment. Have you ever been around or had it happen to you where you start choking? I mean, it's terrifying, right? To hear somebody gasping for air, to, to feel yourself trying to gasp for air, feeling like something's lodged, something's happening, maybe you, you know, you're being choked out, like you don't know what's going on, you can't catch your breath. That is not the place we want to be in. And Jesus is saying, there's too many of us that live in that space. Because the person that's choking, right, they're clearly still alive, but would anybody choose to live that way? Yeah, I just want to go through all, all of life, like just, just like gasping for air all the time. He's saying, I love you too much to not point out these things that are creating a divided heart. Where do we fall? And friends, 
This is what I think is so dangerous about the place and the time we inhabit. There are so many good gifts. But I think if there's a place where things are going to happen, where the the seed isn't going to produce the fruit, I think for so many of us, it's in this place. This description of our culture by David Brooks years ago in his book on Paradise Drive, in the land of abundance, people work feverishly hard and cram their lives insanely full because the candies are all around looking up and pleading, taste me, taste me, taste me. And people in such a realm live in a perpetual aspirational trance. They are bombarded from first waking till nighttime's last thought by advertisements, images, messages, novelties, improvements, and tales of wonder. It takes a force of willpower beyond that of most ordinary people to renounce all of this glorious possibility. It's easier to work phenomenally long hours and grasp at all the candies than it is to say no. It takes incredible dedication to renounce opportunity, get off the conveyor and to be content with what one is. So how do we find that contentment? That is what is spoken of in the last one. We'll close with this, the good heart. Look with me at verse 15 as Jesus brings this parable to a close. As for that and the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. He says there is soil that the seed falls into. And the way the good heart is described, they receive it, they hear it, they take it in. And not only that, there's this obedience, there's this, there's this fruitfulness, and there's a patience realizing like it's going to bear fruit, and it might look different than some of the other people in their lives are bearing fruit. The, the, the thing is not to compare oneself to, well, they have more fruit than I do. The, the question is, do you have any fruits? And Jesus saying the good heart, it, the way you know you got a good heart is that there's this fruit that begins to happen. It's just like, man, this is, this is what it looks like for the kingdom to come. The seed going forth and finding that good soil. But I don't know about you. I can hear that. And I'm like, I think I know enough of the Bible to know when it tells me and speaks of a good heart, I'm like, okay. But what if you don't have a good heart? What if these words are true? And I believe they are in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Like, I don't have a good heart on my own. I don't. I'm not good soil. I'm hard-hearted. I'm divided. I'm shallow. Like, that's the condition of every person apart from the intervening grace of God. And so here's what we need to see, not only this morning, but as we continue in every day. I don't know much about gardening and agriculture and any of those things, but I've never, like, driven past a field and seen somehow the soil rising up on its own and removing rocks and pulling weeds and doing all the things necessary to cultivate the soil. What do you see? You see a farmer. You see a gardener. You see one that comes in and removes the rocks and cuts back the thorns and does these things. The call here, friends, is will you and I cry out to the gardener? The good heart is the heart that knows I don't have a good heart. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans three twenty three. The good heart recognizes 
I'm in need. The gardener needs to come and do the work. And will we cry out to this one who identified himself as I am gentle? And guess what? He is lowly in heart. He's so lowly in heart that he came to this world and he died the death that our wicked and sinful hearts deserve. Like all the wickedness, the vile, the rebellion, the blackness, the darkness of my heart was transferred to Jesus and all of his purity and holiness and righteousness was transferred to me and to you if you're in Christ. That's what's happening here. The one who dealt with the thorns by taking a crown of thorns upon his head to deal with our divided hearts and our shallow hearts, to deal with our hard hearts, to deal with Satan's sin and death. He conquered that. Yeah, Satan is real, but he's a defeated, vanquished foe. He's got nothing on Jesus or on you if you're in him. And so will you and I cry out to the gardener? Will we cry out and trust in the finished work of Jesus And here's the promise. Back in the book of Ezekiel, the Lord promised, guess what, friends? I'm going to make you into that good soil. I'm going to give you a good heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's not that you kept the rules and he did this. He's saying, no, I gave you a new heart that would beat for me. I gave you my spirit. And even then, I'm empowering you to walk in obedience. May we be good hearts. It's because we have a good gardener and we cry out to him. So let me pray for us and get us ready as we get ready to take communion. But be asking, where are you? How is your heart? What's the soil like? Will you cry out to God and ask him to cultivate in you, a receptivity to the ongoing work of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, your kindness, your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for removing hearts of stone and giving us a heart of flesh that can beat for you. And God, we thank you for this meal that you've given to us as a reminder of your grace and your mercy and your your provision. We are so thankful for this reality. And so, God, I pray that you might work mightily, not only this morning, but in the weeks ahead as we journey through this series. Would you transform our hearts into good hearts, hearts that are desperate for your grace, for this gospel word, this truth. May we experience its power. May we see a harvest that is is a hundredfold, beyond all that we can ask or imagine. Would you use us? Build your kingdom, we pray, for your glory, for the good of our neighbor, and for our deep joy and gladness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.